And thank you very much for tuning in to another episode of Code with Kingy, where we are previewing the fifth round of Super Rugby Aotearoa. And joining me on the mics this week is the ever colourful Adam Julian. Now, Adam actually saved my bacon by joining me this week. I was meant to have one of the other boys on to do this preview, but unfortunately, stuff came up. And I don't really want to name names, but I do hope that Thomas Kiwara, uh, with whatever he had on, was actually more important than joining me to discuss footy. But hey, you know, like you give guys opportunities and they either take them or they don't. And who knows, that that might have been his one opportunity sort of let slip. But anyway, uh, I had Adam on and we just talked about what had happened last weekend um, ahead of this weekend's clashes between the Crusaders and Blues and the Hurricanes and Highlanders. And yeah. You already know me. I don't want to give anything away, so I'll let you guys go straight to our combo. Enjoy. All right, man. Well, uh, we'll crack into this, though. And like right, I just sweet. mentioned before, mate, um, I really appreciate you jumping in to save my bacon. All right, sweet. No worries. Let's roll. All right. Um, so before we jump into this weekend's game, where we had the or weekend's game, sorry, where we had the Crusaders playing the Blues and the Hurricanes playing the Hollanders, I've just got a few points that I want to bring up. Uh, the first being the Atatipu review, which has been the the big review of Super Rugby as a whole, um, sort of covering all the New Zealand franchises. And there was a story out this morning on stuff talking about how the consensus is at the moment that the review panel. Uh, want to sort of scrap the the current Super Rugby format and go back to a a Trans Tasman competition where there would be the inclusion of a team from the Pacific and then the top teams from this I guess new competition that they're envis- envisaging then feeds into the international tournament which has sort of been on the cards for years playing the likes of the top French teams and I guess the other top uh, the, across the the different European competitions though so. What were, what are your thoughts? Have you read about it or heard much about this? There's an expression that goes flogging a dead horse, and unfortunately, Super Rugby in the past half a dozen years has lived up to that mantra. Interest is dwindling in the competition. The quality of games has reduced, and change is dramatically required, uh, Jordan. If you go through both attendance and ratings figures in Australia in particular, it's really quite haunting how badly super rugby is in decline in the television ratings last year the a-league outranked super rugby and there are at least an average of four times more spectators who watch the nrl and the afl every weekend compared to super rugby in australia in 2015 the average crowd for a super rugby match in australia was 16,898 this year it dipped to just above 7,000, and the Waratahs, for the first time in their history, failed to draw 10,000 spectators to a game at the Sydney Football Stadium. So fans are voting with their feet, and a similar dynamic is happening in New Zealand. There were 39 matches played in New Zealand's Super Rugby series last year in this country, and the average number of fans that attended each match was about 11,500. So far this year, Novelty aside, Super Rugby Aotearoa is attracting about 25,000 spectators a game. So that says it all in terms of the interest level in Super Rugby. 
So the next question becomes, what is the most viable replacement? And I guess the model that's being proposed is inclusive of Australia because Australia needs New Zealand more than New Zealand needs Australia. And then there's that age-old question about the Pacific Island team, which sounds like a great idea, and I generally support. However, there are some serious reservations about the composition and administration of that outfit. Yeah, totally. I know that that's sort of been one of the big talking points for, for those island nations is that you, you mentioned the administration, and I think it was even last year, was it the Fijian team or the Tongan team that weren't getting paid or they were going to hold out playing a game because they hadn't received their match payments. And, yeah, there's obviously a whole lot of political stuff that goes into it. And then you even mentioned the fact that, and even in my notes I've written, that there seems to be more of a gain for Australia than there is for New Zealand because we all know the state that uh, Rugby Australia is in at the moment, both on the field and off the field. So, But, yeah, like you said, like Super Rugby's interest has been dying, I, I guess, since... Or over the last decade, really, um, I guess with the the drop in the the level of ability from both the South Africans, you know, you, you think of those um, sort of really good bull sides led by the likes of Victor Matfield and Fury Dupree, and then you had the Sharks teams with John Smith and uh, you know some of the other South African legends, and then you think even further back to the likes of the Queensland Reds and the Waratahs when they were sort of at their peak, sort of the the early 2010s, and then before them you had the Brumbies, but for whatever reason, New Zealand's just pulled away. And, yeah, I'm not... Like, I, I guess I am in support of having a, a restructured competition. And, obviously, this COVID-19 pandemic is going to play a big part because, um, at the moment, you can't really fly anywhere outside of our country. And I know there's stuff being done at the moment to get Kiwis back into Australia and Australia... Australians, sorry, um, into New Zealand. But, yeah, I, I don't probably have a, a, a well-rounded enough view to sort of say yes or no to it but yeah it, it's going to be interesting because I don't like you said I think there needs to be some change but you know to to what extent or how they go about it is um, sort of beyond me. Well Super Rugby is the only sports competition in the world that plays in four different time zones even those huge North American leagues don't compete in four different time zones so from a practical standpoint it's already very difficult let alone shoving all the difficulties of COVID-19 on top. Just further to the Pacific Island rugby situation, Jordan, one of the big questions for me in regards to the composition of a Polynesian team is just exactly where the players would be sourced from. Would it be based from Australian and New Zealand Pacific Island players? Would it be based from Fiji, Tonga and Samoa, which are the three countries traditionally most competitive in the international arena, or would it include players from Nui, the Cook Islands, Papua New Guinea? And the big problem, though, with the Pacific Island situation, and it really is a tragedy because Pacific Islanders make a huge contribution to the game, is just a shocking extent of corruption in the administration of Polynesian rugby. In April this year, Francis Keane, who was the Fijian member selected for the World Rugby Executive Committee. He was removed from that process because of a manslaughter charge, and then he was subject of allegations of homophobia from his time running the Fijian prison service. He's the brother of law of Frank Bahiaraba, so he wasn't going anywhere until the world's media reacted strongly against him. 
in uh, Samoa. The Prime Minister's been the chairman of the board since 2014, and their world rankings dropped from 7 to 15. Daryl Suosu, the legendary Black Ferns coach, had Samoa for a brief period. He told me he wasn't paid for two years while he was in that position. And in Tonga, things are equally grim, Jordan. The CEO has held an interim position for four years, and there's been no audits presented to the board. And even Todai Kefu and Anoki Afiaki, two towering figures in uh, Tongan rugby, they've tried to involve themselves in the board procedures and push for reform, and they've been excluded from the process. So these are just some of the nightmares involved in the governance of Pacific Island rugby and to invite a Pacific Island team into Super Rugby, which is a demanding multi-nation competition with the commercial imperatives, television ratings, and games week in, week out. It's hard to foresee how it's going to work. I sort of look at it in the same light as maybe like the Sunwolves. So I guess the Japanese probably have their administration a bit more down-packed than um, what we've sort of mentioned with the Pacific Island nations. Uh, and at the same time, like, you know, how, I guess, beneficial is it for these um, Pacific nations and for the players that are going to be um, made up as part of that team to get, I guess, potentially flogged week in, week out? I mean, you look at the likes of the Sunwolves where it was sort of a combination of Japanese players and Kiwi expats and English expats and Australian expats, South African expats. And, um, yeah, like, I, get, I, I think that everyone... Um, is on the same page and that, you know, that something needs to be done to, to prop up these Pacific nations because, like you said, you look at how many Pacific Island boys make up the likes of the All Blacks and Australian national team and you look at the amount of them that go over to France and over to England to, I guess, feed back to their families and feed back to all the people they have back home. But, yeah, like you said, there, there are so many loopholes and sort of hurdles that you have to sort of go through to, I guess, get all these things across the board to make sure that it's, um, I guess, viable and stable for the future that, yeah, like that, I guess, that, and that's only just the one problem in itself. And then you, you look at all the stuff that's going on in Australia at the moment. And then, you know, will this, um, I guess, potentially make the All Blacks take a backward step or, you know, make, um, I guess, the, the New Zealand play, playing pool take a backward step? Because if you're going to be playing against, I guess, lesser opposition week in, week out, that's not going to make you a, a, a better player or, I guess, um, make, make the, the All Blacks a better team besides when, when they go up against each other in their derbies like we're seeing at the moment. So, yeah, it is, it is really up in the air at the moment and it'll be interesting to see which way the decision makers go going forward. Because I'm not too sure. Cause I'm like, is it So, will Super Rugby, should international travel restrictions, I guess, be loosened up is there still one more season to play under the, the Sanzar contract? Is that right? Correct. And the chairman of Sanzar has insisted that 2021 Super Rugby will go ahead if the travel restrictions are lifted. But obviously the world has changed significantly in the last few months, so nothing is guaranteed. In fact, the other question to ask about the Polynesian Super Rugby side too, Jordan, is where are they going to play? They've hosted games in Fiji successfully, but there's never been a Super Rugby match in Samoa. Look at the difficulties it took to get the All Blacks to Samoa. Wonderful occasion, but awful build-up involved in trying to pull off that fixture. Do they base the Polynesian side in Sydney or Auckland? And if they do that, how does it build an allegiance with the spectators in the islands? Exactly. And then you even... Because I remember even talking to... Um... 
one of the, the Samoan boys that I played with at Avalon, and he was talking about how he had family back home in Samoa that were keen to go to the All Blacks game, but that the, the ticket prices were ridiculous. And so, like, are they going to make it affordable to the people living in the islands? Should the team be based in the islands? Yeah, there's, there's so many different questions that, that go into this, I guess, proposal that, yeah, I'm not sure, like, how long it'll take. You know, it's like, yep, it's one thing to say, yep, we're going to go in that direction, but then, I guess, the process or the steps that decision makers are going to have to take to, to make sure that, I guess, all the boxes are ticked. That's it. And I actually like the idea of basing the team, at least in its initial years, in either Sydney or Auckland and making sure that the administration is robust and the commercial support is sufficient for the team to survive. Because what will happen is the team completely unravels, we might not be having this conversation for another 20 years. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in other news, though, uh, one of the other stories that I that I picked up on over the last couple of days was there was a a 40-question survey put together by NZME reporter Sam Casey, and he asked over, a, well, the report said that he asked over 100 professional rugby players for their insight and um, opinions on other players in the state of the game nationwide, and some of the results for his survey um, were, were pretty interesting. So uh, 40% of the players that he surveyed said that Bowden Barrett was the best player in New Zealand at the moment, closely followed by Artie Sevier at 20%, then Brody Retallick at 12 uh, He had other questions around the likes of the, the best player under the age of 23. Um, that was actually quite close. That was between Geordie Barrett and Will Jordan, Geordie being 33% and Will Jordan being 22 um, and then I guess uh, one of the other big takeaways was he asked the, the players whether or not the New Zealand Rugby Union got the all-black coaching team correct, and close to 50% of them said no. So I guess my first question for you is, like, have you seen this? And uh, I guess what are your takes of the three questions that I just threw out there? Well, Sam Casey is a young guy from uh, Dunedin I've known for quite a while. Jordan, I first met him in uh, 2012 when he was the manager of the Otago Boys High School First 15. They had a very powerful team that made the national top four final beaten by St Kennigan's College that year. And he was doing the coding on the video for the game. So he was helping them formulate their strategy. And then he got a gig with the Highlanders and he was putting out these hilarious videos a la Full Gould, motivating supporters ahead of big games. He was photographed at a legendary bender when they won the Super Rugby title in 2015, standing on a roof, saluting a crowd like William Wallace. And then he was busted with uh, Geordie Barrett at McDonald's at some ungodly hour. And that later became a little bit of a scandal, I guess, for uh, Geordie Barrett. So Sam Casey does have a very good rapport with the players if he's out with them at three o'clock in the morning, his results are probably quite accurate, if not that uh, scientific. I guess the first thing to ask about the players who disapprove of Ian Foster's choices, the All Black coach, is that the 50% who didn't make the team, perhaps? I'm not so uh, sure. The other thing that's uh, interesting with the Bowden Barrett result is that 40% of uh, respondents have identified him as the best player in New Zealand. That must be all the guys at the Blues because Arikan's performances have dropped about 40% since Bowden left. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, yeah. Because another 
Another one of the questions that he put out there was who uh, the players thought was the best first five in New Zealand, and close to 60% said Bowden Barrett. So, Well, that is uh, very interesting, isn't it, uh, Jordan? Because uh, Richie Moanga played the World Cup semi-final at first five-eighth, and Bowden Barrett has spent the entire season at uh, fullback. You wonder why that's the case of the leading professionals are more intimidated by the prospect of facing Barrett at first five than at uh, fullback. Yeah, well, I'm not sure if uh, Ian Foston's listening to this or, or has read the story, but it'll be interesting to see which way he goes in that department because there's just there's just so much talent on hand at the moment that it's going to make for interesting viewing um, should the All Blacks take the field this year how his lineup goes, not just through 1 through 15, but then through to the full 23 and I guess the, the utilities that he goes to pick. Well, the other interesting thing about this survey, Jordan, is if you were Ian Foster and then you see them Rugby Union who are notoriously tight when it comes to managing their media, you'd be rather annoyed that 100 players have participated in this survey and given this potentially damaging review of Ian Foster. The fact that it's been done incognito means that nobody's accountable, but it's quite a different approach to ascertaining information. I don't know of any other player polls that we've ever really had before. No, no. But it's good. This is the sort of stuff that I love, though. Like, I, I, like I've sort of banged on about it with me in, in terms of this podcast and trying to create some sort of, um, I guess, relatability to the players, because... I think for the most part they're trained or, or told to sort of say as little as possible um, when, you know, I guess when they're undertaking interviews or when sort of fronting the media just in case, you know, they sort of say something that could be potentially damaging not only for them but potentially the team as well. So I don't know. I, I just feel like there, there needs to be some sort of loosening when it comes to the media and their interaction with the players and there needs to be a lot more transparency because... I just think it makes everyone a bit more likable and a bit more relatable, and I feel that that's sort of the the disparity with fans and players at the moment. It's just it seems like whenever they front up for something, it's almost like it's disingenuine or they're they're just not being themselves. If that makes sense. Precisely, I was watching the fan, which is the Andrew Voss program mm. on the NRL last night. Just a wonderful show with the players sharing all their hobbies and old players sharing old drinking stories and fighting stories, and it does make them far more personal. The other thing to say about Sam Casey is that in 2015, he actually spent a week in the All Blacks camp before they played the Springboks in a big test at Eden Park. So he is somebody that does have an intimate knowledge and respect among the players, not just because of his uh, personality, but because of his uh, knowledge around the understanding of the game. As I say, he was uh, doing the coding for Ryan Martin, who later became an Otago coach and since got a position with the Rebels. So he's no fool, uh, Sam Casey, in regards to his uh, presentation of opinion. And in fact, I remember I had him briefly on uh, Sky Sport College Rugby as the mouth of the South, and he did a very funny thing. I asked him to pick a South Island 15 and he picked 14 players from Otago Boys High School, and the winner was in the third 15. <laughs> All right, he's obviously quite a loyal bugger, and I can respect that. 
Yes, uh, he's uh, a Tyree guy, and he's always quick to remind me that the first All Black was from Tyree, the Tyree giant, James Allen. But the, it'd be interesting to see if anyone else takes this uh, methodology and we get a similar uh, kind of reporting in the future. I certainly found uh, some of the answers uh, very interesting. Mm, mm, me too. I guess kicking on for that, though, on the point of sort of players, some big signings this week out of the Blues camp, both Hoskins Tutu and Mark Talia, two of the bolters uh, from both Super Rugby Aotearoa and uh, the previous Super Rugby competition. They've both signed on for another two years. Uh, do you have any thoughts on them and what their futures are, potentially in a black jersey? Well, Mark Talia is one of the real feel-good stories of Super Rugby, Jordan. Last year, he was actually contracted with the Hurricanes, and tragically, his brother, Jericho, was assaulted in a bar and died, and he was released from his Hurricanes contract, having not played a game. He went home to Auckland. He's from the Massey area, and Massey's renowned for producing wingers of Mark Talia's ilk. Remember Anthony Tuatavaki, the old All Black? He's from that part of the world, and so too is Tavita Lee, now playing his trade in Japan, and we were referencing Sam Casey's survey. It was interesting to note that Mark Talia was identified as one of the hardest players to tackle, and that's a sensible question. You've got all these statistics in the game nowadays that measure all sorts of different things, most of them completely irrelevant to anything tangible. Guys who are tough to tackle were invaluable, and Mark Talia in the Super Rugby goes forward all the time. He's like a spastic washing machine, isn't he? He's just very hard to control with that uh, low centre of gravity. And his uh, play for the Blues has been influential, not just in terms of uh, finishing tries, but I like the way they use him, uh, Jordan. They get him in close to the ruck occasionally. They get him running off uh, scrums. And he's a real go-forward merchant and someone who, after a terrible tragedy in his family, has found peace and prosperity in Auckland. A wonderful story, Mark Talia. Yeah, well, I actually nicknamed him the Eel because, because um, like just what you mentioned, you mentioned sort of the, the washing machine motion that which he sort of runs with his hips. I just thought, you know, he's, he's just quite a slippery bugger, um, and obviously that that makes guys hard to tackle. And then even with his, um, I guess his lack of hair. I don't know. I just sort of like, it's like what like, what does this guy remind me of? And because you know, I thought of an eel, and you know, an eel's quite slippery and. Yeah, I, I started calling him the eel. I'm not sure if it actually cottoned on because I'm not sure who listens to this podcast or whether my mates actually listen to me half the time when I'm on the source. But yeah, I thought I'd throw that out there and see if it, if it catches wind. And if it does, you know, um, that credit goes back to Code with Kingy. But kick on. What are your thoughts with uh, with Hoskins Satutu? Well, Hoskins Satutu is from a completely opposite background. Talia, unfortunately, the victim of tragedy. Satutu comes from a very accomplished family. Waisaki Satutu was a Fijian international, played for Auckland in that legendary Ranfurly Shield era. They had 61 defences between 1985 and 1993, and so that's where the genes come from. And his mother is also very prominently involved in the sports community. She runs the sports at Howard College, and they're a national championship-ranked school in a number of codes. Hoskins went through uh, Sacred Heart College and then he breached the New Zealand schools and New Zealand 20 system. And uh, boy, has he been playing well, athletic at the kickoffs and the lineouts. Again, like Talia, he just can't stop moving forward. And there was a discussion last week 
Jordan about his eligibility for Fiji and England. But here's another thought for you. What about the Sevens, the Olympic Games next year? Can you imagine Hoskins Tatuto in the middle row of the Sevens team? Yeah, he, he's definitely got the skill set. Well, exactly, and the blistering speed of his uh, father. Uh, the other thing that has been really good for Hoskins Tatuto and the Blues is the fact that he's behind or in front now of Akira Iwani. Akira Iwani had a similar reputation to Hoskins Satutu a couple of years ago at the Blues and perhaps didn't quite live up to the expectation. But a competition breeds quality and success and Hoskins Satutu is a great example of that. He's an exciting uh, prospect for sure. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You, you touch on the eligibility, um, and even sort of kicking on to the sevens. But um, one of the one of the takes that I heard uh, through the grapevine was that um, when he mentioned the fact that he could play for both England and Fiji, that was sort of his way, I guess, of maybe sort of putting the pressure on Ian Foster to potentially select him for the All Blacks. Because um, one of the other points that I was going to bring up was just the the abundance of loose forward talent we have at the moment. Like You think of someone like him. and In a similar position, you've got Marina Makailitu down at the Highlanders. We've got Cullen Grace and Tom Christie coming out of the, the Crusaders. Um, and then maybe to a lesser extent, you have someone like a Duplessis Karifi coming out of the Hurricanes. And then even, yeah, I, and I think even in-house for him, you've got guys like Dalton um, Papali'i, you, you touch on a Kiriwani. And then you've already got the established sort of players in uh, Sam Kane, Adi Sevilla, uh, Luke Jacobson when he had his head right. Oh, I forgot to mention Lachlan Boucher. You know, there's there's so many players from Ian, for Ian Foster to pick from that, it, yeah, again, it's going to make for interesting viewing um, when the All Blacks team gets announced, should it happen this year, which way it goes. Because, you know, there are only a handful of jerseys to be given out or a handful of roster spots. And there is going to be someone who's disappointed who, or who receives the, the wrong phone call, I guess. Oh, prior to lockdown, Lachlan Boshier was undoubtedly the best loose forward in Super Rugby. He was top of the turnover count, but the change in interpretation of the breakdown laws has really nullified his effectiveness. Hoskins Satutu, by contrast, is more of a freewheeling running back rower, so the new rules perhaps favour him more than they do Boshier. A lot of these players are cut from the same jib, though, Jordan, and I wonder whether there's a talent similar to Jerome Kaino, who was such a rock for the All Blacks for a number of years. And the other thing to note from your conversation there is Duplessis Karifi in that list is perhaps the only player that can't really cover six or eight. He could in an emergency, but he's not someone that you'd necessarily identify straight away as playing six or eight. And that probably drops him significantly down the list. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the other names I forgot to mention as well was Shannon Frizzell, and he's put in two big shifts the last weekend. For you, um, looking at that All Black 6 jersey, because that was the big talking point coming out of last year's World Cup, the fact that we didn't have a genuine blindside, is he sort of the front runner for that, given his, I guess, experience in the All Blacks in- environment? Well, he certainly played well against uh, the Crusaders. His uh, tackle count was uh, 22, which is immense for a back rower who was uh, known for his uh, running game. 
Shannon played very well in that uh, test in Nelson against uh, Argentina. That's a similar story to Vai Fafita. He did the same thing against the Pumas in New Plymouth. The Frizzell does have an advantage in terms of age and experience. But I'd like to see a guy like Hoskins Satutu thrown in with the long-term uh, future in mind. Obviously, we're not sure when the next all-black test might be, but it would be uh, fantastic to see a young player moulded and grown into a prodigious talent like Jerome Kaino was. Uh, Frizzell could be that guy. Satutu could be that guy as well. They have an abundance of choice, but I think what you want from your six, apart from a kickoff and a line-out option and a solid defender, is some uh, power uh, with the ball in hand. And last year in the World Cup semi-final against uh, England, with the greatest respect to Scott Barrett, he's more a grafting uh, flanker lock than a powerhouse ball carrier. And that seems to be the way the game is going, having the flankers on the edge, punching holes. And I think perhaps the first requirement of the blind side is the most physically imposing of your choices. I mean, Ian Foster will know this. He's, he's got to get that, that combination because you're going to have Sam Kane there because he's your captain. And you're going to have Artie Sevier there because he's... Well, he was the best player in New Zealand last year and he's arguably the most talented loose forward we've ever had um, outside of likes maybe uh, a Zinzan Brook or, or a Murray Mexted. Um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's an interesting one because like who do you push and where do you put who where? Because if Sam Kane's the captain, does he get first dibs on the seven jersey? And then does that mean you you push Artie Severe to eight and then you play someone like Hoskins at six or do you play Artie at six? You, you know, there's just all these questions that are that are going to arise, um, not only when the team gets picked, but then, you know, when it comes to game day and how they sort of structure their team and, and their attack. So, I was going to say that you want your most destructive runner coming off the back of the scrum, and Sam Kane is not the most destructive ball-carrying loose forward in New Zealand rugby, and in that cohort of players mentioned, he's the slowest. Sam Kane is the all-black number seven, and as the captain, surely he has the first right to play that position. It was interesting, too, in those survey results from Sam Casey that Sam Kane was identified as both the toughest player in New Zealand and one of the most respected. So that's so heartening when there were perhaps some question marks over the legitimacy of his position as captain to read that from his fellow colleagues. Totally. Um, I mean, I, I sort of had sort of questions about, I guess, the announcement and considering the, the amount of football that he had played up until that point or anyone had played really, because by picking him as your captain, like you said, you almost give him first rights to, to play whatever position he wants to play. But I guess the problem for me was the fact that Adi Sevilla was the best player in New Zealand last year and he plays open side for the Hurricanes. I know that he played a little bit of eight to sort of accommodate the likes of your Sam Canes. But at the same time, is is Artie a genuine eight? And if that's the case with Sam being at seven, I don't really feel like you can play Artie at six, but you need Artie on the field. And so then you're sort of left with this hole where, like you said, you've, you've got this sort of um, trailblazer, I guess, in Hoskins Atutu in terms of like the, the skill set and just how dynamic he is. Because he, like we've mentioned, you know, he, he's a line-out jumper. He's good with ball in hand. Um, he's 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 good with the tackle as well, and he and he's silky. So 
whether or not he beefs up and sort of focuses on, I guess, the the brunt of his game on, on being that hard ball runner and maybe looking to sort of shape himself as a six, I don't know, because if, if the Blues are going to continue to play him at number eight, can he make that jump to then move to six? You know, like, there's, yeah, that, those are just some of the, the questions, I guess, from my end going forward. Well, the other thing that might be worth saying, too, is if the stricter applications of the laws that the breakdown endure, theoretically, it's designed to speed up the game, and therefore, if there is more penalties and less emphasis on the explicit collision area, then the need to have a hulking blindside like Jerome Kaino may disappear. You might be able to pick a slightly smaller, quicker and agile back row. Yeah, yeah. whether or not these rules carry over to the international scene, um, that's yet to be determined. And that was one of the points I brought up um, the other week was the fact that that would be one of the other interesting things is whether or not, if the, or I guess if the All Blacks take to the field this year uh, and they've become accustomed to playing with these new breakdown rules, but when they go then to play in the international arena and they're playing by the old rules, you know, just how difficult that may be because... I mean, these these boys have almost had to flush an old style of play or their normal style of play to accommodate these new these new rules or these stricter rules of the breakdown. And then, you know, after having played, was it 10 games or nine games, then they didn't have to go back to playing like they used to, if that makes sense. So, yeah, again, that'll be that'll be another that'll be another question, um, I guess, sort of to prop up and, and how the All Blacks handle that and how much time the All Blacks have with their playing group to, I guess, refresh that, that old style of play. Well, and refresh is the key word, uh, Jordan. Uh, the All Blacks looked uh, stale and tired at the end of the World Cup last year, and between World Cups is the time to rejuvenate the team. Evidently, further to that player's subject, uh, Jordan, what about if there's no uh, All Blacks this year in terms of tests against Australia or whoever else, what if the All Blacks played the Crusaders? That would settle the coaching uh, survey, <laughs> wouldn't it? That's a great point, Adam. Well, uh, I, I guess like all the players would be tuning in off the back of what they've said as part of that survey. I'm, I myself am a little bit sceptical with how Ian Foster will go. And I guess even like the, I guess the vote of confidence that he's had by only getting a two-year deal rather than sort of having him on the books till the end of the World Cup cycle. That's almost, I guess, um, one of the things to sort of add to the pressure cooker of, of being the All Blacks coach. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've sort of voiced my own sort of takes on how the NZRU handles their business and how that sort of flows down to the teams and the players and, you know, even looking at their, their, their business infrastructure. But that's a that's a tale for another day, man. But I think I think we maybe getting a little bit sidetracked as as much as we we love to just sort of go off on these tangents. I want to jump into this first game, which is the Crusaders and the Blues on Saturday night. Uh, the last time the Blues beat the Crusaders was back in 2014, which, funnily enough, was when Benji Marshall was a part of the Blues team. And then I think even sort of jumping off the back of that is the fact that the Blues haven't won in Christchurch for 16 years. So uh, my first point is that. Both teams have a lot of star power from numbers 9 through 15, but I think the the bulk of this game will be dictated by what the four packs do and whether or not said teams can have their their big boys win the game up front. So 
Do you think that the this young sort of up and coming Blues team has it in them to to do the job away from home and in, in the fortress that is Orange Theory Stadium at the moment, or do you think that the Crusaders' experience um, will maybe hoodwink uh, this Blues team? Well, that game in uh, 2004, Jordan, the last time the Blues won against Crusaders and Christchurch was absolutely extraordinary. Repenny Dowdow scored a hat-trick, and that was the famous game where Carlos Spencer ran in a try from his own goalposts and deliberately took the ball to the corner and was heckled really quite crudely by the Crusaders supporters, and he kicked the conversion from the sideline and gave the fans the fingers because he denied the home team a bonus point. That particular highlight's on YouTube and was playing frequently during the lockdown. It's a highlight that I send to my Canterbury friends on their birthdays, and <laughs> it's something I've enjoyed watching repeatedly. 2004, evidently, was also the year that New Zealand Idol premiered, and the leading album in New Zealand at that time was Crusader by Scribe. So how ironic is that? Anyhow, uh, the Blues have won uh, seven in a row now, going back to the lockdown, which is really uh, quite extraordinary and illustrates just how bizarre 2020 has been. Crusaders, 32 games unbeaten at their home stadium, and it could be grim weather, and the Blues might be forced for the first time since uh, the Chiefs game in Hamilton to really get down and dirty with the Crusaders pack, which they might not necessarily enjoy. But you mentioned the uh, forwards being so important. The kicking is really the key. Uh, the Crusaders have just slaughtered teams so far with their uh, kick returns. Uh, Will Jordan, uh, Sebu Reese, and George Bridge, an absolute nightmare to contain as a back three. And it's not just their uh, running game, uh, Jordan, but the kicking is so selective and intelligent as well. And when the Crusaders' uh, line-out starts to uh, function and spoil the opposition, it becomes a very t tall order. It is It is going to be an interesting one. I think that should the weather pack down, I think that the game will probably turn in the Crusaders' favour because they've just shown the inability. Same with the Blues, um, like we saw when they played the Chiefs in Hamilton, to sort of just control a game. And if any team is presented with just a sniff of a chance of scoring a try... Um, and you had to choose between them. You're picking the Crusaders to probably take that opportunities uh, with opportunity or opportunities, like we saw in, in Christchurch a couple of weeks ago when Will Jordan scored his two tries, um, that they take them. And when you've got Richie Mwanga lining up a kick a goal, it's more often than not, it's probably going to go over. So, yeah, I mean, like it's... It, it, <sighs> It's sort of it's it's a star-studded game because like there there really are no weaknesses. I guess the the only real area where there might be um, a bit of disparity is is in the front row. But even then, I think that Ofatunga Fasi and and Carl Tornakuafi have um, done a really good job in sort of steadying up that the set piece. It's come time for the Blues, but like we saw last weekend, uh, Joe Moody and Michael Alaalatoa completely destroyed a pretty inexperienced uh, front row for the Highlanders. So. Yeah, and like you said, I think if the Crusaders can, can get their line-out right, it looked a lot better on Saturday um, than it had done in, in the previous two weeks. But yeah, but then you even touch on the kicking. So so the Blues are averaging a competition-leading 28 kicks per game, but they're kicking it to arguably the best back three in the world outside of the All Blacks. When you look at the fact that uh, Will Jordan and Severus and George Bridge 
um, together, and that's without George Bridge playing last weekend, have accumulated close to 600 run metres in three games. So it will be interesting. I think, like you said, if the weather packs down and, and the four packs both front up, then I guess, I guess kicking will, will play a big part. And then that sort of leads into um, my final point is both teams have shown um, the ability to grind out games, which has sort of been weird viewing when you consider how poorly the, the Blues have historically been at, I guess, controlling that last quarter. Um, you know, a lot of the time, you know, they might be in the fight, but they sort of just get slapped around or their fitness sort of drops off. And yeah, but this year, um, like we saw in their first up game with the Hurricanes, like we saw when they played both the Highlanders and the Chiefs, that last 15 was really where they with was really where they won the game and, and got themselves home. So, yeah, I'm, well, I'm... Blues had a, a series of uh, defeats by narrow uh, margins, and it's extraordinary what can happen to a team if you finally prevail by a narrow margin. You find that you keep prevailing. The other thing the Blues have got to do to win this game is they've got to throw in a few surprise tactics against the Crusaders, and they've got to take them on. Uh, mentally, so if they've got a chance to uh, score a try directly in front of the post 10 metres out, don't take the three, have a try and say to the Crusaders, we're coming down here to beat you guys. No one goes down there with that kind of uh, abrasive and uh, free-spirited attitude anymore, but uh, no one really outside of uh, Auckland expects the Blues to win this game, so I want to see the Blues go down there with an attitude that is uh, confrontational, that is ambitious, and that is uh, surprising, uh, trying a couple moves that they haven't employed before and really saying to the Crusaders, we believe we are better than you. And that's an interesting point, though. So piggybacking off that, if we go back to two weeks ago when the Highlanders had a shot at goal uh, with a couple of minutes to go to tie the game up, but they instead opted for the line-out, did you approve or disapprove of that choice from, I guess, either Aaron Smith or Ash Dixon? Well, I thought it was a reasonable decision, despite the fact that the uh, opportunity was lost. I guess the thing to say about that, though, is the context is slightly different. That was approaching the end of the game, and had the Highlanders uh, chipped over the penalty, they could have had a draw, which means extra time. So it depends on the context of the game. But there was one uh, last week where uh, the Highlanders were up uh, 14-8, and they had an attack... And I believe they took a shot goal, which they uh, missed. And it's more the uh, opportunities earlier in the game to sting the Crusaders that you should be trying to maximise rather than those at the end. Right. No, that's right. And like we saw on on Saturday um, this weekend just gone, I mean, how big a play was that John Nariki stuff up? I think has it, had they turned that, I guess, position into seven points or even five points rather than the three. And I guess it's just like for a team like the Crusaders, they're more than happy for you to take the three, right? Um, whereas Correct. I think that had, like you said, had the Highlanders put five points on the board, not only would they have got their tails up, but it might have also been a bit of a shock to the system to the Crusaders. So, yeah, like I, I'm, I'm all for your point, though. I think that if you're going to go down and win in Christchurch, you're probably not going to win out grinding the Crusaders, you almost have to sort of go in there, um, sort of catch them on the hop, maybe score a couple of early tries, and then just defend like your life defends on it. Uh, because like as we've seen, if you try and grind out a game like the Chiefs did a couple of weekends ago, all it takes for the Crusaders is 
a quick line out or a misjudged wipers kick uh, when you're going into field the ball for them to then just pounce on it in atrocious conditions. So, yeah, it is it's, it is going to make for interesting viewing. Um, but besides Barrett and Mwanga, though, because I know those guys are the two um, game drivers and they are sort of the poster boys for each team at the moment. Uh, one of the matchups that I'm keen to watch closely is the battle between Braden Enor and Rico Iwani. Now, I'm not sure if there's too much of a history there, I guess, from back in their playing days. I know that Braden Enor went to St. Kent's and Rico Iwani was, of course, a big name coming out of Auckland Grammar School. But both of those guys are probably sort of third and fourth in sort of the rankings behind Leonard Brown and uh, Jack Goodhue and sort of maybe pressing for that, that 23 jersey or, or maybe even pressing for that 13 jersey. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure which way Ian Foster is going to go like with a lot of other positions in the all-black team. But what are your thoughts on that matchup? Because both are playing um, arguably their best football at the moment. Uh, Rico obviously has looked far better than, than what he was in 2019. And, and for me, Braden Enor, off the back of last year, I mean, I've, I've, I've always been a big fan of his. And I guess the point of difference for him is that he has the ability to play on the wing. And our midfielders as of late, if you sort of touch on like a Leonard Brown, a Goodhue, uh, a Conrad Smith, a Martinonu, they didn't have anywhere near the same pace that Braden Enor has. And I guess maybe if Riku Iwani can sort of shore up the defensive side of the ball, it'll be, you know, sort of a, a coin flip between who you pick between those two. Well, they marked each other in the 2014 1A final at Western Springs. Eden Park was out of commission that weekend and Auckland Grammar won that game uh, 31-26. So these two have a long history of uh, rivalry. Quite uh, different players. Enor, more of a defensive merchant, although a very dangerous yeah. counter-attacker, can cover both sides of the wing. Yuani, probably a specialist left winger and a combative uh, centre. Uh, Yuani looks like a new player this year, apart from that dreadful haircut. He's uh, getting his hands on the ball more, uh, whereas last year he was uh, starved of the possession. Obviously, the Blues uh, winning, so that helps his uh, confidence, but the fact that he's more involved and more of a leader in the play is significantly influencing his impact at the Blues, and the thing about the Blues and Yuani now, even though he's still only under 23, he's actually a senior player in that uh, back line, and he has uh, leadership credentials. He led the New Zealand secondary schools in that before mentioned here in 2014. I felt last year he's almost a stranger in a strange land out there on the wing, but he's involved, he's talking, he's happy, and that's been uh, huge in his uh, development. Uh, Enor uh, is such a good player, isn't he? Uh, Jordan just makes uh, smart decisions, and if it wasn't for his injury last year, he almost certainly would have had a, a test cap by now. That is a mouthwatering matchup uh, for sure. And in terms of uh, Enor and Jack Goodhue alongside each other, would there be a, a smarter midfield combination in New Zealand than that one? Yeah, well, that, that's the thing, I guess, for me, like looking at a midfielder and I guess my take on things is that you, I like to have a bit of a yin and yang. So if you think of having a a blockbustering runner, say, in the likes of like a Nani Lamapi, and then I like to have maybe a, a distributor outside him, sort of a la Ma'anonu and Conrad Smith. And... I guess the thing for me at the moment is that, like, when you when you're playing as or playing as part of a star-studded backline like the Crusaders, I guess that maybe sometimes maybe some of your flaws, and I'm not saying that Braden Enor um, can't distribute the ball, 
um, even though I don't think he's anywhere near as good a distributor as Jack Goodhue, both with his pass and the offloading, because I think that Jack Goodhue's offloading has just gone to another level off the back of last year. But yeah, it, yeah, it, it's going to be a weird one, because I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how I feel of having both Leonard Brown and Jack Goodhue there. They, they're quite similar players, but last year, Anton Leonard Brown's form was just too good not to pick, and I think that the the beauty of having someone like Jack Goodhue at centre is that he is just so good defensively, like Braden Enor, that you, you can't not pick him there as well, because I think that was one of the, the question marks with Nani last year and why he wasn't picked. And I think outside of maybe the, the communication stuff that Steve Hansen had sort of gone on about the previous year, was just maybe that when you get to that test level and you're playing in those crunch games where it's maybe not so much going to be your ball carrying that gets you across the line, it's your tackling, that that was the area um, in which the, the All Blacks coaching group sort of saw as a weakness and they and they went for their best defensive team. So... I, I, I like both players, both Iwani and, and Braden Eno, and I think that this weekend, you know, not only for the maybe the fate of who wins this competition, but even for those guys going forward, whoever gets the one up this weekend. I know they play each other again, but um, I think that maybe this this fixture this Saturday, because of all the pressure that's being heaped on it, and it's going to be their first time playing each other. That yeah, it'll, it'll just make for interesting viewing from my end. It's nice to finally have a game between the Blues and the Crusaders, which has uh, palpable uh, meaning. Uh, who can ever forget those uh, early days of uh, Super Rugby when uh, the Crusaders beat the Blues in the in the first Super Rugby final that they won up at Eden Park. Norm Maxwell straight away for a try after the ball was uh, fumbled in the in-goal area. That uh, 2003 final, which uh, the Blues won at Eden Park, and Doug Howlett scored precariously close to the dead ball line. And then that uh, 2004 game, as uh, mentioned, uh, with uh, Rupeni Dautau and Carlos Spence uh, uh, cutting capers, you get the impression that the Blues are on the brink of something uh, very special. And if it happens uh, this weekend, it could be uh, one of the most exciting things to happen in Auckland for a very long time. Mm-hmm. I guess with all that being said, though, are you are you back in the the men from Auckland to score an away victory, or, or in what will be a famous away victory, or do you think that the Crusaders are just too good at home? I think the Crusaders, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm the same. I was, as as much confidence as I have in Bowden Barrett, and as much as I like the way that that Blues forward pack is progressing off the back of. Patrick Tuipulotu's captaincy and the likes of Dalton Papali'i and Hoskins Tutu showing um, their credentials. I think that experience, like we saw at last year's Rugby World Cup, is a big thing in, in, in what shapes to be a, a tight contest. So I'm probably going to pick the Crusaders to go 12 and under. I, ho- I actually hope that the weather doesn't play any effect on the game. I'd like to see a dry track, and that way we, we will possibly see... Um, a more well-rounded view of both teams rather than it sort of being forced solely on the forward packs and um, which team can dominate the, I guess, field position. Field position, field position, sorry. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in a similar light to you, though. But um, we'll, we'll kick on to Sunday's game, though, where the Hurricanes are hosting the Highlanders. Uh, the Hurricanes coming off their first win and the Highlanders, again, like we mentioned before, unfortunately going down at home to the Crusaders. Now, the Hurricanes won last year's games, both of them, both of which were determined by three points. But then even off the back of that, 
18 of the last 22 clashes between these two sides have been determined by less than seven points. So similar to Saturday night's game, um, Sunday shapes to be a close one. Like we mentioned before, um, the Hurricanes and the Highlanders can both sort of admit that their their tight fives aren't, I guess, a strength or one of the stronger aspects of their game. Uh, I mean, I mean, the the Hurricanes have have, have come a long way with with their scrum thanks to, funnily enough, an ex Highlander and and Tyrell Lomax and and Dane Coles. But then even with the Highlanders, with the likes of Josh Dixon, who of course is out, um, I actually haven't caught up on him and whether or not he's going to be out for an extended period of time, but then even his locking partner, Putty Putty Parkinson, played a huge part in them shoring up their line-out coming into Super Rugby Aotearoa, and they actually boast the most accurate one in the competition so far. So, again, touching on the forwards, which of these two sides do you think have the upper hand going into this contest, and how do you think they'll fare? I'd expect the Highlanders to kick a lot and really challenge the Hurricanes' line-out, Jordan, the Hurricanes' line-out in the first uh, three games has been uh, wobbly, bordering on atrocious, uh, yep. really. And there seems to be no apparent excuse uh, for it. Uh, Dane Coles is arguably the best all-black hooker there's ever been. And he's throwing the ball way over the back. The jumpers don't seem to be getting their uh, timing right. And the Hurricanes probably a little bit short of height compared to the others. Now, you want to talk about height, Putty Putty Parkinson. He's about as tall as a skyscraper. And as you say, he was a big part of the game last week against the Crusaders. So expect the Highlanders to kick a lot, particularly Aaron Smith around the box. That seems to be something that they do quite often. And if they can pilfer Hurricanes ball inside Hurricanes half, then they can play that speed game, which has been effective for them. The Hurricanes... That win last week, uh, Jordan, was really about uh, attitude. Their defence in the first round against the Crusaders was appalling. They missed 26 tackles compared with the Crusaders' 13. Last uh, Sunday, they were forced into some very earnest examination, and they held on uh, grimly in the end, but uh, got the victory. I had to laugh when uh, Warren Gatlin came out and complained that Geordie Barrett's uh, penalty shouldn't have happened. He would have kicked it from 10 metres further away as well. <laughs> <laughs> when uh, they knocked over a Hamilton, the statue, they should have put a statue of Don Clark there. Well, maybe they could put uh, Geordie Barrett's uh, boot alongside it as well because that kick was about as reminiscent as the ones that uh, Don Clark used to kick uh, back in his uh, heyday. So uh, the Highlanders, uh, to kick a lot and to try and uh, pressure the Hurricanes' uh, line-out and... That will uh, make uh, the afternoon potentially difficult for the home team. Yeah, you, you mentioned kicking, and that was one of my points uh, here on my notes. Was I don't think either the Hurricanes or Highlanders have kicked very well. I mean, Aaron 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 Smith was on another level last weekend, um, and there was one kick in particular where he was sort of camped inside his twenty-two, and he was able. Or, no, it was off a line-out, sorry, and he was able to box kick it down towards halfway, but. I think one of the major letdowns for both teams in all of their losses has been their tactical kicking. And so for the Hurricanes, uh, if we think back to that Crusaders clash, when you think about all the missed tackles and just some of the wobbly kicking towards that last quarter and in their first game against us, I thought that Bowden Barrett and Autity Black really made uh, the likes of Chase Tears here 
and those other outsides pay for some of their decision making of kick returns and even for the Highlanders, uh, so last weekend their, their kicking wasn't all that great and they probably gave a little bit too much time to the likes of Will Jordan who is just clocking up run metres at the moment. And then even off the back of that when they played the Blues the previous weekend, you know they were right in that contest but just some of the, the aimless kicking from poor old Scott Gregory who had a, who had a really rough night and then even Mitch Hunt. Uh, yeah, so as much as I think that yeah the line-out might be a strength, it'll, it'll be interesting to see who wins that kicking duel because neither team has really um, shown that that's an area of strength for them to build off. But one of the other the interesting things that I, that I wanted to bring up was just go forward. Now, we all know that go forward uh, is going to be a big part of a rugby game, but I guess for these two teams that are playing on Sunday, they, they go about it in different ways. And I, I mentioned Aaron Smith, and I mean, how good was he on the weekend? I think without him pulling the strings, I'm, I'm not sure where that, that Highlanders team would be. So a lot of their attack is based off of Aaron Smith and that they play the, the game at width, they play it very flat, and that all just comes from his ability to, to, to spiral past the rugby ball. Whereas for the Canes, they, they don't really revolve a lot of their attack around Perinara. Um, and funnily enough, I saw an article earlier this week uh, written by Mark Reason, and he, and he talked about the disparity between those two players because I guess of how closely they are watched because they both play the same position and they're arguably the, the two best halfbacks in New Zealand at the moment. And yeah, uh, TJ's passing just isn't anywhere near Aaron's. And so I guess even having with having had Bowden Barrett as part of their uh, team, the Hurricanes in the past, a lot of their attack revolves off first receiver. So I guess looking to you, man, like how do you think both teams will look to combat their styles of play considering how predictable um, it'll probably be going into this weekend? Well, TJ Perinara's pass is slower than Jamie Booth, the reserve halfback. I've been very impressed with uh, Jamie Booth when he's come into the Hurricanes games this year. His energy is uh, palpable and his pass is like a little whippet. And Booth would be uh, starting at a lot of the other places, uh, Jordan. In fact, if uh, Super Rugby was Super 18, uh, he'd probably be in the starting team for two-thirds of the uh, franchises, potentially. I've been uh, most impressed with uh, Jamie Booth. The other thing about uh, Perinara's game that uh, seems so obvious at the moment is the fact that there's just simply too much expectation on him. Why would arguably the best halfback that Wellington's ever had be playing first five? And Perinara's been shifting into first five for the last quarter of uh, many games. Uh, Perinara is not a first five. He never will be a first five. And so I think it's unreasonable of uh, Perinara to be expected to essentially uh, be the key distributor around the ruck and then the key tactical playmaker uh, when the game's about an hour old. So I think uh, Perinara needs to be relegated of some of his responsibilities and allowed to express himself more uh, freely and the Hurricanes made another curious announcement this week when they signed uh, Simon Hickey the third, first five. Simon Hickey is essentially a similar kind of player to both Jackson Garden Bishop and Fletcher Smith. So unless we're going for a new front row of first fives, I'm not quite sure what <laughs> Jason Holland and Co are thinking. Yeah, I don't know either. Like You mentioned the fact that TJ gets pushed out. Um, and I can understand it with wanting to get Jamie Booth on the field and, and Jamie Booth as a, as a halfback through and through. But yeah, like I, I can't say that does or doesn't instill any confidence into the likes of like a Fletcher Smith by having your halfback pushed out to 10. And again, it, it's a tough one, right? Because TJ is the vice captain and 
he is one of the senior players, and you want your senior players on the field uh, when it's crunch time. But yeah, like as you mentioned, I'm not sure how I think of him as a first five. He does have this tendency to sort of tuck the ball under his arm and run. And kicking from first five, or just, I guess, dictating play from first five is so different at that level than it is at halfback. And the fact that they've only made him a makeshift first five the last couple of weeks, um, I don't know how often he trains there with the Hurricanes down at Rugby League Park, but yeah, there are there are a few sort of head scratches coming out of the, the Hurricane space at the moment. I mean, we talked about Carlos Spencer um, last week with Nick and, you know, him, I guess, essentially walking out on the team midway through a season, which is which is really weird considering, you know, he's an ex-player. I mean, we touched on him with with that Blues Crusaders fixture all that time ago. And you think that, like, having been in professional environments, he'd know how sort of unsettling a coach walking out on a team would be. And they announce another first five midway through their season when it's not like they've gone down a first five because I saw that Fletcher Smith was playing for MSP here in Wellington a couple of weeks ago, so he seems to be all right. And then, I mean, Nick even mentioned it to me on in Sunday's game as well. I mean, Dubrovsky Karifi was almost having the game of his life on the weekend, and they pulled him off with half an hour to go. So, yeah, like, I, mean, that's, I, I do, I've heard a lot of good things about Jason Holland as a coach. He has sort of talked about not to um, the same extent as Tony Brown, but sort of being one of those very, um, I guess, sort of innovative coaches. But I'm not sure if like the all the sort of unsettling stuff has sort of come off the back of uh, Plumtree being taken up by Ian Foster as part of his coaching group. I'm sure that played a part in maybe the sort of irky start for the Hurricanes in 2020. But no, there are... Yeah, there are there are a lot of different things you can point at at the Hurricanes at the moment, and you can sort of shake your head or have this question of why. Well, I'm not sure it's a coincidence that John Plumtree's departure has led to a decline in the lineup. Chris Gibbs has been promoted. He's very capable, did a fantastic job with the Wellington Lions, but it appears that since Plumtree has left, the lineup has unravel and Perinara simply just has too much responsibility he's the captain, he's the first five, he's the halfback, I hear he does the team laundry and drives the bus as well there's uh, too much uh, expectation on uh, Perinara and his uh, performance and that's a direct acknowledgement perhaps of the weakness of the 10 uh, position, I'd like to see Fletcher Smith reinstated uh, Jackson Garden Bishop was very good against the Crusaders scored a record 20 points and he's a solid performer, but Fletcher Smith just has a little bit more spark, and he also kicks better off both feet, and that might resolve some of the kicking difficulties that the Hurricanes have had. Jackson Garner Bashup doesn't really kick off the left foot, but if you watch Fletcher Smith play, he'll kick off both feet quite often. It's an interesting one, though, because one of the points that I brought up with those two is that I felt like Jackson sort of, he was the steadier option. And he, like, like we've seen with the, with his boot off the tee, he's he's an accurate goal kicker, but yeah, like you said, he doesn't really have that sort of creativity in terms of taking on the line. And I'm I'm, I'm not I'm not going to try and pin that on him, but I think the fact that the the Hurricanes attack has been based around Bowden Barrett in that first receiver role for so long, that whoever was going to have to sort of fill in in his boots was always going to have a tough task. And I do like the looks of someone like a Fletcher Smith having watched him at the Mitre 10 Cup level, but for whatever reason, he just doesn't look anywhere near as confident when he plays at the Super level. He's made a couple of nice cameos off the bench, but in all the games that he started, 
he's almost quite hesitant. And, uh, yeah, like just from my own personal view, he just hasn't looked comfortable. And the fact that they've signed another first five, that can't have done him any good either. Well, that's it. And your point is a valid one, although uh, prior to the lockdown, he was arguably playing the best he's ever played for the Hurricanes. The other thing that was curious about Fletcher Smith and his involvement in senior club rugby was the fact that he was playing the fullback. You might have thought with the Hurricanes struggling to fill the 10 position for 80 minutes, they might have asked MSP that Smith explicitly plays first five, although the MSP first five, young Adam Morgan, is very useful. But unfortunately, despite the character shown by the Hurricanes last week in their victory, it would seem that they're not going to be a genuine contender for the championship unless they can have a steady or authoritative 10 for 80 minutes. And Perinaro playing a 10 for part of the games, as honourable as it is, really is only a paper mache solution. Or if you go even sort of one step further, do they, if they can't find someone to run the to run the cutter, do they look to change their game plan and perhaps well, make think, it more nine orientated? Well, absolutely. Uh, you've got uh, Perinara there, who is one of the world's best uh, halfbacks. So maybe they may look into uh, that approach. Yeah, I mean, like we see the, I guess, the dividends that it's it's paying for the Highlanders at the moment. Although they have two good game managers and the likes of Mitch Hunt and, and Josh Iwani, we see how much more freely those guys play with having um, the elder statesman and, and Aaron Smith sort of sort of run the show. But to wrap this all up, I'll I'll, I'll give you my last marquee matchup, and it, and it's again well, we, we've we've banged on about them um, between TJ Perinara and Aaron Smith, and yeah, I'm I'm just really interested to see how this one goes. I know that um, TJ is quite an emotional player; he wears his heart on his sleeve, and I know that they're they're probably very good mates. But at the same time, knowing the competitor that, that TJ is, I know he'll want be wanting to get one up on the guy that's been sort of one step ahead of him his whole career. But at the same time, Aaron Smith hasn't arguably played better rugby in his career either. Um, you, you maybe have to go back to maybe just after the World Cup when I think he may have won the, the New Zealand Rugby Player of the Year or, or the, the New Zealand Māori Rugby Player of the Year. I can't pinpoint what year that is, sorry. But yeah, that's going to be another mouth-watering, I guess, encounter between two very, very good players. Well, that's it. And, uh, Perinara and uh, Smith, uh, as you said, uh, have played each other uh, so often now. That extraordinary statistic, 18 out of uh, 22 games decided by uh, seven points or less. I suspect it'll be uh, similarly close on Sunday. Yeah, me too. Who are you, who are you tipping, though? Well, I think the Hurricanes, funnily enough, might, might win, uh, which kind of runs contrary to the way I've been uh, speaking, but they are very strong at home, of course, and uh, the Highlanders really threw the kitchen sink at the Crusaders last week and still ended up losing by 20. Yeah, but one of the other points that I brought up with Aaron Smith was the fact that another weird coaching decision, you pull him with 10 to go, you're down by 6, and you lose by 20. So maybe if they keep Aaron Smith on for the whole 80, and I know that Kane Hamilton probably won't want to hear that because it might mean a bit of extra running after the game. But as much as I am a Hurricane supporter, I just think that the way that this Highlanders team is rolling um, off the back of Smith 
And if Mitch Hunt can keep kicking his goals and Sierra Tomkinson and Rob Thompson tackled like they did on Saturday, because they're not going to be playing anywhere near as good a back three or as dangerous a back line as they did last weekend, that they might be able to um, get one up on their mates from, from the North Island. So, again, it's, I'm sort of speaking with my head and not my heart. I, I'd love for the Hurricanes to win. And, I, you know, I was pretty joyous with their victory last week. But I, I just really like the look at Aaron Smith at the moment. There might be a little bit of bias in that because he is one of my favourite players. But, no, I, I do think it'll be tight. But I, I think with the, the looks of Putty Putty Parkinson, Shannon Frizzell, Marina Makaili Tu'u, they're, they're, they're a little bit bigger in the four pack, which which I think will make a difference. And like you said, because there does seem to be um, a bit of confusion or um, a lack of stability with, with the nine and tens at the Hurricanes at the moment, that there is the opportunity for, for a Highlanders team who, even though they are coming off two losses, they were two pretty tight games. And I think they would have taken a lot of confidence out of the fact that had they just taken their opportunities, the, the results, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm tipping the Highlanders, but I'm, but I'm thinking with my head and not my heart. Well, you continue using your head because it'll take you a lot further than your heart. <laughs> okay, Adam, I think that's our, our cue for things to be wrapped up. But like I mentioned before, mate, you're always um, a pleasure to talk a bit of rugby with. I know that we, um, we can sort of get lost in the source a lot of the time as well because we start with one thing, but then it jumps to another. But that's the reason why I have the show and um, it's the reason why... I, I get guys like you on because you always have great insight. But um, I guess from now until Sunday, which which is when I'll hopefully get you back on to to recap the weekend's play. Um, stay safe. Have whatever fun there is to be done in Taranaki over the next day or so. And yeah, talk to you soon, my friend. Well, we're talking about great uh, flankers, uh, Jordan. Today is the 80th birthday of the Black Panther. Happy birthday, Waka Nathan. Never lost a test. In an all-back jersey, 14 games, 14 wins. He went on two tours of Britain, 63, 64 and 67. Broke his collarbone on each tour, but still managed to recover and play test matches. They were six-month tours in those days. But to complete this podcast full circle, we were talking about some of the inherent madness in Samoa rugby. In 1973, Waka Nathan coached the New Zealand Māori against Samoa in a very contentious match in Apia, and the local spectators were not very pleased with the standard of the refereeing. So, unfortunately, the fans decided to invade the field, which resulted in the postponement of the game early. I remember talking to Waka Nathan about this episode a few years back, and I said, what do you remember about it? And he says, I still wake up with the vision of the woman chasing me with the corner flag. Oh, <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that, Adam. But but thank you, thank you for that tale. Yeah, just end it there. All right, sweet. That's uh, that's a lot of fun. All right, I'll, I'll talk to you later. All right, take it easy. Cheers. Bye.